welcome back to Talking Stocks. Todd and Joe here. And this week, we thought it would be helpful for our listeners to kind of hear about the EB Capital and Limelight Alpha scoring model and kind of how it's compiled. And, you know, you might wonder, like, why some of the big names aren't on our top lists all the time. So I'll have Todd, I'll have you get us going here. And why don't you just give us like a little bit of a little bit of background and like how you how you got started with this and how you got to where we are now. Hi, Jill. How are you doing today? I almost uh, I almost said the happy Wednesday because we normally record this on Wednesdays. Right. But this week we get a special Friday episode for our listeners. Yes, we um, do. Yeah, so hopefully everybody will enjoy getting a little bit more of an inside baseball feel for how we go about picking stocks and, and what I think are, are, are important things to be considering as you're going through and building out your portfolio and how to use basically a systematic, objective, repeatable system like ours to be able to separate the noise and be able to keep you honest so that you're not justifying uh, positions maybe that you shouldn't be justifying. And Joe, I'm going to have an example of a mistake that I made that luckily I was saved from continuing to make um, based upon this research. And I'll, I'll mention that later on in the show. You asked me, Joe, just to start off by giving people a little bit of a backstory so that people have some context of you know, why, do, why do I care what Todd says? Um, and, and I think that, you know, one of the things that people might be interested in knowing is that, you know, I started out my career you know, in the 1990s. Uh, it was around 1997 that I got my first job on the sell side working for an independent research firm in New England. I was very fortunate to have a mentor who had learned and been a portfolio manager in the 1970s. So I was just so grateful to the lessons that, that were shared with me that he learned over his experiences in navigating a very uh, tumultuous, weird Time. I mean, inflation doing crazy things and the market uh, as a result doing crazy things. Um, and then all the way, of course, managing money through 1987 and, and that kind of craziness and the savings loan crisis in the early 90s, et cetera. Um, I, I worked at that firm for, for a number of years, eventually became a partner in that firm uh, before going out and starting EV Capital Markets, which is our institutional business. Uh, we also have the individual business, which is Limelight Alpha. I started EV Capital in 2003, and I started off with this same exact model that I'm going to explain to our listeners today. So this model has been unchanged for 17 years. It's pretty and remarkable. That, yeah, that includes some pretty tough periods, right? You know, I mean, we had, uh, we had some pretty pretty tough periods along the way, Joe, and it did a great job of helping uh, our users on the institutional side, uh, large mutual funds and hedge funds, navigate those risks, and more recently through Limelight Alpha, hopefully uh, helping some individuals be able to spot some great stocks and, and sector and industry trends uh, as well. Uh, in addition to Limelight and EB Capital, uh, I also teach a course, as you know, Joe. I am an you alum of the course. I know very well. That's right. At the University of New Hampshire called How to Talk Stocks. Um, and I do some writing. I do a little bit of writing for The Motley Fool and for Seeking Alpha and for other places as well, in addition to our podcast. Absolutely. Great, great background for sure. I actually, I did not know that the model has been unchanged for 17 years. That's pretty, that's pretty remarkable. I think that a lot of the 
a lot of the big institutions can't say that about their own models. So good. If for it you. isn't broken, <laughs> if it if isn't it ain't broken, broke, don't fix it. <laughs> don't fix it. Absolutely. And, and, yeah. I, I think it's as simple. It comes down to as being as simple as that. And you know, a great house is built on a great foundation, right? So Absolutely. I mean, just to give some people some understanding here, when I started the company in 2003, the whole goal was to explain why. Why do stocks rise and why do stocks fall? So what we did is we spent a thousand hours crunching all sorts of data points to find key factors that move stocks up or down. So we built this foundation and because the foundation was strong, it hasn't had to be changed for that 17 year period. The same things, the same inputs that helped people find winning stocks 20 years ago uh, are helping people today find winning stocks. Yeah, it's remarkable. So why don't, we, why don't we get into the different factors that go into the scoring model? Obviously, you know, there's a kind of a fine line here. You don't want to share your, your Krabby Patty secret recipe or anything. But, you know, I think that it would, be, it would be helpful at least for the viewers and the listeners to see the different factors, the individual factors that go into the, the scoring for each individual stock. Absolutely. I think it, it, you're right. It would be absolutely useful to go through each one of those. And while I'm not going to give the weightings for each one of these components, I think that, in, you know, listeners at home following along at home, you're going to be able to figure this out uh, a little bit on your own. And, and if, you, if you want to be able to take pieces in, of, the, of, of what I'm going to be talking about here, the inputs that go into the model and use them in your own investing life um, without having to, to, to do the entire model. But I, I want to walk you through each one of the, the seven factors that we found move stocks higher or lower um, that go into the score that we give each of the individual stocks in our universe every week. I mentioned earlier, Joe, that I was very fortunate to have a great mentor who had a lot of experience dating back to the 1970s. And one of the things that that mentor really drilled into me early on was that stocks follow earnings over time. So, you know, it's not surprising, given that that was my background, that uh, earnings per share analysis is one of the factors, it's actually two of the factors, that we incorporate into our seven-factor model. Specifically, we look at forward earnings growth. We want to see it because if stocks are following over uh, earnings over time, we want companies that are growing their bottom line. So we look at forward earnings growth relative to the earnings estimate for this current year. We want to see growth there. But we also want to see consistency in management executing. And the way that I define management executing is in their ability to understand that Wall Street will punish you if you overpromise and underdeliver, and it will reward you if you underpromise and overdeliver. So we do an analysis of historical EPS beats. So the first two components, the two first two factors in the model are going to be our forward earnings expected to grow relative to the current year. And does management have a great track record of over delivering on the expectations? So earnings per share beats over the past four quarters. Those are the first two components of the model. The third component of the model is insider buying, but it's not just any insider buying that we're interested in. We don't care if directors are executing their options, right? We don't care about that kind of stuff. What we care about is CEO, 
the CFO, the COO going out and buying shares at the market in the open market, just like you and me. And some people will say, well, what about insider selling? Remember, there are many, many reasons that people sell shares. They could get divorced. They could have owned stock for 30 years and need to unlock some for legacy planning issues. Who knows, right? There's lots of reasons that people sell shares. There's only one reason that they buy them, Joe. That's right. They're expecting the shares to go higher. So earnings beats, earnings growth, insider buying. And then the next component is money flow. And by money flow, what I mean is price action and volume action. And this really gets to the heart of the matter of the idea of letting your winners win. What we found is that stocks that are winning have a tendency to continue to outperform, especially if they're consistently beating Wall Street's earnings expectations, their earnings are expected to grow in the coming year and insiders are buying. When you get that kind of a combination with positive money flow, the returns can be pretty great. Absolutely. All right, moving on from money flow. Then we look at short interest. Now, what we found is that at the beginning when people start to build up short positions, that's the smart money. But once you get more and more people holding short, a lot of times that becomes retail money, it's, follow, it's followers, right? People who have followed the trend and betting against the stock. And what we found is that oftentimes you end up as the scenario where you have companies that are now beating on their earnings, over delivering on them, right? Expected to grow their earnings. They've got insiders who have started to buy. They've got positive money flow or some combination of all of those factors. And you've got short sellers who are overly pessimistic on the stock. And what we do is we say, okay, you're overly pessimistic on a stock if you have more than five days uh, to cover. In those scenarios, when you have these other factors lining up, you're more likely to get a short squeeze than anything else. So we reward contra, on a contra basis, we're rewarding short interest, okay? The next factor is valuation, but we do valuation a little differently than maybe some people might think, okay? We do valuation on an apples to apples basis. So what we do is we say, okay, how are people valuating XYZ company on their forward earnings relative to how they valued that same company over the last five years. If their forward PE ratio is at the low end range of their five year historical trend, we reward the stock uh, in, in our scoring system. And then the final of the seven factors in the model, Joe, is seasonality. What we found is that there are in baskets of stocks, sectors, industries, individual stocks that will move up or down at particular parts of the year. And that could be dot tied to end user demand, say like the holiday season and how it impacts retailers. It could be due, due to government um, budget cycles. So if you have a fiscal year budget, state budget that ends in June, could be a number of different things. But what we did discover is that yes, seasonality plays an important role in determining whether or not uh, stocks are gonna face headwinds in the near term or tailwinds in the near term. So we, on a quarterly basis, look at the last 10 years and we say, okay, how has the stock done over the last 10 years in this quarter? So then when you get all of these inputs put together, all right, 
you can then assign a score. Each one of these gets a particular weight and a particular score, and they get summed up together to come up with a final score. And once we have a final score, then we can rank each one of the stocks in our universe, break it out by market cap so we can say, okay, these are the best scoring and worst scoring stocks in large cap, in mid cap, in small cap. But even better, Joe, we're able to take that, aggregate those individual scores by sector and by industry. So we can not only tell you that, yes, it's a good time to buy financials, or it's a bad time to buy energy, whatever, but we can tell you within those baskets what the industries then you should be focusing on and what the individual stocks you should either be buying or avoiding. And that, in a nutshell, is the model. Very nice. So follow-up question for you, Todd. So I think um, a, lot of our, a lot of our subscribers and Twitter followers, they probably they see that, you know, the highest scoring stocks are like 100 to 110 and the lowest scoring stocks are like 15 to 25. And I think a lot of people probably wonder, why does it stop at 110 and why does it start at 15? Why isn't it zero to 100? You can actually rarely, it's rare, it's not, not common, but you can actually pull a 115 score out of this, Joe. Now, I could have normalized it to 100, uh, but I didn't. And I started 17 years ago, and I didn't want to change anything once I got it started because I didn't want to add to the confusion. So, you know, it's kind of like in a test where you get bonus points. Okay, I got 100 on the test, but I get an extra 15 bonus points because I finished it in the first 15 minutes. I don't know. <laughs> um, but there, there is no, um, there is, uh, there's, that's just the way that the scoring system it, it works out. Um, so, yeah, you could theoretically get a zero but it's very unlikely that you'll get a zero. Yeah. Um, usually you'll pass one of these factors and get at least some points, mm -hmm. you know? So usually you'll get like a, a 10 or a 15 or a 20 will be the lowest scoring stocks. And then usually, and it depends. I mean, if the market is selling off, then you're going to lose some of the money flow components uh, to the scores. So let's say that you've got a, a downward trending tape for an extended period of time, like a six month downward trend or something like that. Then what's probably going to end up happening is the high scores are probably going to be running from 90 to hundred, somewhere in there. And then when you get a really strong uptrend, well, and the money flow is going to be positive across all the different stocks across most of the baskets. That's when you're going to get this, this much larger universe of stocks to choose from in that say maybe hundred to 115 range. Um, I think at the, the smallest number, that people would see in one of our reports uh, for large cap or mid cap or small cap, maybe would be between 10 to 20 ideas that they can choose from uh, on a weekly basis. And then during rip roaring markets where you know things are going very well, um, maybe you're looking at a universe of ideas that could be 50 or even higher um, to be able to go through and, and, and evaluate. I do not, as an aside, I do not, um, I'm not concerned if a stock has a high score and then drops out of that top list, right? It could still have a very high score. It's just the other stocks right now have a higher score. Right. So when you're talking about new money, right, Joe, you're saying to yourself, well, that might be a high score. And if I own it, I'm not going to sell it. Right. But there are other stocks that maybe look more attractive right now. And maybe that's where you're coming in with that question of there are some stocks that have been doing really well, Todd, but they don't show up in that best report. Why is that? It's simply that the model is telling you that for new money today, you might be better off focusing on these other ideas. 
Yeah, yeah, that's that's a great point. Like an 85 or a 90 score is still good. It just might not show up in the report in a really bull market. Absolutely, exactly, exactly true. Yeah. Um, so following up on that, um, you may or may not know the answer to this question, but this just popped into my head. Do you, do you happen to remember, like, if ever, the last time there was like a zero scoring stock or a 115 scoring stock? It would not shock me if there's a 115 scoring stock in the research right now. And uh, yeah. I can actually, let's, let's take a look real quick. Hey, at, let's find uh, out. Let's find out in real time right now <laughs> and see whether or not there is any, because one of the things that we do in for Limelight and for the institutional client base is we put out a report every week and it's the, it's the best stocks by, best scoring stocks by sector. So it allows you basically to see very quickly uh, and I'm going to share my screen real quick. Um, so if you're on the podcast, I'll do my best to talk you through it, as I always do. Um, but if you're on the video, you'll be able to see it. And we are on YouTube. So please give us a follow on YouTube. And we're just going to open this page up. And, um, and I want to show you what we're looking at. And um, we'll see if Zoom wants to catch up with us. Uh, <laughs> Joe, can you see the screen yet? or, or is Yes. That just... Yeah, you're good. Okay. So if you look at that screen... Yeah, here we go. If you look at that screen, you'll see that we have some 110s in basic, right? Cleveland Cliffs and Dow and Compass Minerals, which you and I talked about on the podcast a yep. couple weeks ago as one of the ideas uh, for seasonally strong stocks. Um, and just scrolling through here, we've got some 95s down in basics too, which is interesting because basics have actually, Joe, been one sector that have been moving up the ranking. And I think that investors may be a little underweighted to that. And I think that's probably due to... Um, anticipations that once this election does get through, Joe, maybe we're going to get an infrastructure bill or um, at least stimulus that could boost demand for some of those basic materials. Yep. And then if you look at consumer goods, Joe, we've got a couple more here in the 105 area. You've got autos with cars.com. You have furniture because of rising home sales. You're starting to see General Motors pop up its head. Um, energy stocks, still very few. Most of them are natural gas midstream providers that, are, that show up in there. Uh, financials, we're starting to see banking, Joe, move up the ranking, um, especially regional banks. So I yep. think the investors might want to just take a look. And if they're not sure what individual um, banks to buy, we do have some in the report that screen well. You could always just take a look at the KRE, which is the regional bank ETF. That one might be worthwhile. I get a 110 in healthcare with five prime at clinical stage. Uh, biotechnology. I've got a 110 with X, Axon Enterprises, right? Maker of Taser and Avis 110s. Um, yeah, just scrolling through here. It looks like 110 is going to be the max this week. Churchill Downs. Yep. yep. Little Fuse, which you and I talked about on the show again. Yeah, and then in dead. technology, technology is kind of interesting, Joe, right now because software stocks, you know, especially the cloud SaaS area of the market, that was like, you know, red hot from March through, you know, September or whatever. Um, and our research reflected a lot of great stocks in that cloud software space. But what we've seen more recently is that, yes, some application software stocks are still scoring pretty well for us. But what's more intriguing to me is we're starting to see semiconductors move up the ranking. Yes. And that, I think that I talked about that on a, a guest appearance I had this week with Dave Keller. He's a great follow on Twitter. People should Google him and look him up. Um, we talked about semiconductors and, and how they're strengthening in our research. I think it's an area also the investors may want to 
keep an eye on. And you know, one of those stocks, and we can actually, if you want, we can take a look at how the scores break down for the stock. But one of those high scoring stocks and semiconductors that investors might want to consider is NVIDIA and VDA. Yeah. Absolutely. So um, you kind of touched on it before, but there are there are a lot of a lot of stocks like the the kind of the the most common ones that you're going to read about on you know wherever you get your investing news, whether it's through Twitter or whether it's through you know Investors Business Daily or just like general email newsletters. The ones that most people probably own, like the Amazons, the Apples, the Googles of the world. It's it's always interesting to me because those don't often show up in the top scorers. So it would be interesting to see either you can choose kind of choose your own adventure for this, which way you take it. But like, what are the what are the specific scores for stocks like that right now? Or you can just kind of give us an overview of why those stocks don't necessarily score as high as you might think. Also, Tesla would be a great example of that. Uh, yeah, no, I'm gonna, I, I picked out two that we can talk about today. And, you know, in, in prime, you know, this is typically the way things work. Technology sometimes cooperates and sometimes it doesn't cooperate. Uh, and, and right now it's not being very friendly right now. But the, the two stocks that I had picked out to, to kind of go over with people were IBM and um, NVIDIA. And I thought that those two would be interesting to sort of discuss because, you know, IBM has been a company that's been in the news lately. They have a plan to sort of break up their company and, and do some interesting things. And, you know, they do pay a dividend. And some people have been very interested in trying to bottom fish that as a value-oriented play, uh, Joe. But I think that, you know, the smarter money would be focused on a name like NVIDIA, because NVIDIA, frankly, um, has a higher score in our research. You know, that, I mean, if you look at the way that the scores break out, you've got... Yes, IBM passing on things like the forward earnings growth, and it does have a solid history of beating expectations, but the money flow is completely negative on the stock. And there are other parts of, that, of those inputs that really just don't screen, screen nearly as well as they do for NVIDIA. So while it may be tempting to say to yourself, oh, maybe I can you know, go out and buy uh, IBM at a, at a discounted valuation, um, our research would tell you that that's not the best move for your money, that you're more, you would be much better off with a name like NVIDIA and letting that one continue to win and then letting IBM prove itself. Because one of the things, Joe, that I think the model does a great job of is helping people avoid the risk of dead money, helping reduce opportunity cost so that you're not going out and say, okay, I'm going to buy IBM but that money is gonna be dormant for six months or 12 months or 18 months or God knows how long. And in the meantime, you could have owned another name that would be generating out better returns and then waited. And once IBM score starts to reflect your thesis, then go out and buy IBM. So I think that that is um, a very useful way of using the research and it kind of dovetails at the top of the show. I had I told you I was going to share with you a mistake I made where the research research kept me honest. Yeah. And the mistake that I had made was to, to I, I looked at the banks, Capital One Financial in particular, COF, and I had said to myself, you know, with unemployment risk rising, 
we're most likely going to see delinquencies increase and bad debt increase and charge-offs increase and less spending on cards. So I wanted to go short uh, Capital One. And in one of my accounts, I did. Now, a little ways in, the score in our research started to climb. And it climbed from a very low score to a low medium score to a higher medium score to a quite a strong score. I think it's above a 90 now. And seeing that score start to improve made me say, I really need to rethink my, my thesis here. Maybe I am underestimating just how much liquidity that's being pumped into the system in fiscal and monetary policy is, is going to prop up uh, these, these consumer credit oriented stocks. So I got out of the trade. I lost money on it, but I lost way less money on it than I would have if I had stuck around. And that was a, uh, just another good way that when you would take a, a systematic rules-based approach like our system of how it keeps you from say justifying your trade, right? Because I could have kept saying to myself, no, but no, but no, but no, but in each 10% move higher, but I didn't because I looked at it and I said, there's something going on in this, in, in our score that is telling me that I'm wrong and I, I need to listen to it. That's a great lesson when you're, you know, your, your thesis broke and it's, it's so, so hard sometimes when you're, when you're so, so, when you have such a strong feeling about a stock like that to kind of, you know, get, get emotional with it. It's easy to do. And so it's a, that's a very wise lesson for, for our, for our listeners, especially our younger listeners. Yeah. Hopefully, hopefully people, you know, heard the show today and, and, you know, they, they, you know, they take something away from it. And one of the things they could take away, I mean, it could be that some of the factors work for their, for them that jive with them, or it could be that, that they just believe that, Hey, you know, systematic rules-based investing can make a lot of sense, especially when it comes to identifying, you know, new ideas.